This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This is the organism that we will be talking about, the common fruit fly with the name Drosophila melanogaster. My laboratory also works on mouse embryonic development, but I thought it would be more fun to just keep it to this fruit fly. And when William Blake wrote, Am not I a fly like thee, or art not thou a man like me? I'm not sure that he understood what a prophetic statement that might turn out to be. Because multiple diseases, disorders, various genes that are involved in processes that are important in human beings have all been learned from the lessons that people have worked out in this fruit fly. So developmental mechanisms such as where the head should be versus where the tail should be is very identical in terms of which kinds of genes are involved in us, the human beings, and in the flies. And, and how is that possible? One of the reasons is, of course, that the number of genes that define us and the number of genes that define the fruit fly, and our number is going down every time one looks more carefully, and it's probably closer to 20,000, that these two numbers are not very different. In other words, in fact, the rice, which is not very intelligent at all, has 55,000 genes. So, um, so we, we have the same number of tools, and which kind of makes sense. Uh, if you wanted to build, say, the Taj Mahal, or you wanted to bid, build a shed in the backyard, you would probably go to Home Depot anyway and buy the, the, the uh, ingredients. It is how complicated you make the, those ingredients and how you fit them together. And human beings do that in a very complex way uh, compared to some of the other individual species. But that does not mean that we need many, many more genes. As a result, if we could start mutating or changing these genes in a simpler organism where we can actually make the changes and look at the consequences of that change, then that will tell us a lot about what the consequence will be of making a change in this human. So it's not a surprise, therefore, that 75%, and I think the number is now higher, of known disease genes caused in humans have a recognizable match in the genome of the fruit fly, Drosophila. Now, even though the numbers are the same, one could argue, well, Maybe there are 15,000 genes here and 15,000 there, but it's a non-overlapping set. Maybe a new group of genes became evolved in humans. And that is uh, something that any scientist will tell you uh, not possible because of the evolutionary history with which we have been derived. Now, this is a slide that I borrowed from uh, Matt Scott when he was at Stanford. Um, and I like it because he compares the, the geological timescales with the biological timescales. And we always talk about geological timescales being this enormous timescale. But see, 50 million years ago, uh, the definitive event that made the Americas, the, the formation of the Rocky Mountains, uh, was just 50 million years ago. And just 200 million years ago, all of our land masses were together. And yet, insects have been around for a very long time and mammals and insects separated from the 600 million years ago. What's even more impressive is that 1.2 billion years ago is when plants, animals, fungi diverged, which means all the basics of how a cell will divide, how a cell will make its proteins, and so on and so forth, had been already set aside a long, long time ago. And it makes zero sense to keep reinventing that method once an algorithm has been built. It changes, sure, but as it changes, it builds on top of what was available. And as the branches of evolution uh, come about, then the changes uh, take certain organisms in one direction or the other. 
Now, um, just for fun, I also put in where we come in. So the hominids arrived 4.4 million years ago. Homo sapiens, that is us, came about 200,000 years ago. And we came out of Africa only about 60,000 years ago. So the idea that all of these genetic material that will define us, the very intelligent poetry writing, painting making individuals, um, have require a very special set of genes is just absurd from the point of view of how little time there has been since the evolutionary time began. Now, I do um, like to talk about, and in this, uh, this talk, I'll talk about uh, why we study Drosophila, and, and, and I will repeatedly keep talking about how it helps human beings. But I wanted to make sure that, that uh, you understand um, that, that I strongly believe that just as an artist or a, a literateur uh, is allowed to do whatever they want to do as a creative outlet, similarly basic scientists should have uh, the ability to create or to do any kind of science that they feel like. And my favorite poet and philosopher Tagore seems to be agreeing with me. Unfortunately, the funding agencies have never read Tagore. And the philosophical implications of paper boats uh, riding in the ripples of time is not very meaningful these days. And so we, we do concentrate, after all it is good to do good for humanity, and so we do concentrate on that. But I thought I'll just put this aside as a thought. So let's talk about curiosity-based science. Um, this began in the laboratory of, of uh, Seymour Benzer, and this one simple experiment is the one that got me this uh, job at UCLA. Uh, this movie was actually made in Larry Zapirsky's lab, but this is something that's the Benzer teammates that we all use. So here is a group, this is the teammates. You put a bunch of Drosophila there, and then you push it, and you give it an ultraviolet light on one side and green light on the other side, and you see that all the flies choose ultraviolet light. Okay, that's because they like ultraviolet over the green light. It's a choice that they make. Well, it's always that, you know, so this is the majority and there's that I got to be me kind of a fly of just sticking over there. Okay, but, but I mean, the, this is an overwhelming choice. Now, that's not surprising. That's why you put these bug lamps in your backyard they have ultraviolet light and they attract insects. Now, this is the mutation that I worked on in Seymour's lab. And in this case, you find, and this is not a trick photography, there's green color there, and in fact, the ultraviolet lamp is on. And you see that these flies all choose green. And this experiment itself got me this job at UCLA. And Scott Waugh is thinking, thank goodness the standards have risen for our <laughs> professors now. Okay. Um, now, um, why, why were they choosing the way they were? This is a section through the compound eye of the fly. And you see that uh, there is this large photoreceptor cell surrounding this one small cell. So these, are, these have numbers on them. So this is called photoreceptor number one, two, three, four, five, six. This is called R7R for photoreceptor seven. So these are the light, uh, just like our rods and cones. Similarly, flies have these, and it's a, it's a compound eye. Now, the seven-less mutation, which is what that mutant was called, it was called seven-less because of this obvious phenotype. You see that there are these six large cells but the seventh cell is missing in all of these homotidia. So one could just say, well, then it makes a lot of sense. The R7 cell must be an ultraviolet detector, and it's missing here, and so therefore they can't choose ultraviolet light, and just leave it at that. 
So any kind of creativity in science is through making a simple observation and then really getting to the depth of what this is truly telling me rather than what my first knee-jerk reaction is to what I see. And it was known in Benzer's lab at that time that these cells talk to each other in order to determine who is going to become which cell. So therefore, uh, this then presents an opportunity to figure out what kind of a discussion was going on that led to the R7 cell forming the R7 cell. To make things more interesting, uh, while I was still in Seymour's lab and, and Larry Zapersky had just started at UCLA here, his lab found another mutation which is very similar to this but in a different gene. And they decided to call that mutant Bride of Sevenless or Boss. Um, in my lab then, when I started at UCLA, we started working on this mutation, which is a suppressor, and I'll explain what a suppressor is in a minute. It's a suppressor, the result of which is that some of these omatidia have the R7 and others do not. Okay, so now we had to come up with a cool name, so we called this Son of Sevenless or SOS. So, uh, you know, we Drosophila geneticists lead such uninteresting lives that we have to give our genes interesting names. Um, so what is a suppressor mutation? So imagine that there is a, uh, th there's some kind of a uh, signal which then leads to a final amplified signal. Think of this as an electric current which is being amplified by an amplifier. But it's not an electric current. It's not an electrical signal. It's a, it's a chemical sort of a signal transduction signal. So this then gets amplified into this which then gets amplified by another amplifier into this and this signal is enough to make that R7 cell. Now, if I were to mutate this so that this amplifier doesn't work so well anymore, now this will remain this and then it will get amplified somewhat, but that's not enough to make the R7 cell, so hence we get a sevenless mutant. Now, if I make a second mutation called a suppressor mutation in this son of sevenless gene, which is downstream, such that this becomes overactive, then even if this one doesn't function, well, this overactive one enhances it to the extent that it's not quite like wild type, but once in a while it crosses that boundary that you need in order to make an R7 cell. And now comes the fun part, which is after all the dust settled and everyone had found various genes in these pathways, and this is not just the enterprise of one lab, it involved uh, people from Jerry Rubin's laboratory and people who came from there, such as Ernst Hafen, Mike Simon. Uh, it involved Seymour Benzer and people who came from there, such as Larry Zipersky, myself. It involved uh, Paul Sternberg, who works on worms, and people who came from that lab, such as Min Han and Tony Pawson in Canada. And then eventually, when, the, when this thing was proven to be true in mammalian systems, then of course many, many people, Pierre Chambon, Yossi uh, uh, Schlesinger, and so on and so forth, uh, they all got involved in this. So why was this so important? Because sevenless turned out to be uh, a receptor tyrosine kinase, which is uh, a signaling molecule which is, uh, makes, puts phosphate groups on other things in, in response to a signal. So it is this signal which then activates it and tells this cell to become an R7 and Zipersky's boss is actually signaling from the neighboring cell to tell this cell to become an R7 cell. So it really was that cell-cell interaction uh, sending a certain signal. Um, there are many oncogenic functions of these kinds of molecules. For example, you may have heard of the HER2 new, the HER, which is human EGF receptor, mutated uh, a lot in breast cancer. VEGF receptor, which is mutated in all different kinds of vascular um, cancers. 
insulin receptor is like this where the signal there is not tethered but but it nevertheless is activated by insulin and what was really novel in this was that this molecule son of seven less that we found there was no correlate of that available at that time um son of seven less is what's known as a gaf uh, gtp is activating uh, exchange factor now there are tons of them in english what that means is that a molecule like sas activates a molecule like ras ras is a molecule which is mutated in 60% of all solid tumors cancers and this brings the ras over to receptor tyrosine kinases a mutation that gave many more of those r7 cells inhibits ras mutation in that causes neurofibromatosis which is uh, commonly known as elephant man syndrome and then there are there are other many many kinases downstream of it that other people have worked on so here is this little experiment with asking a fly to choose one color versus another color and uh, this was done a while ago but not you know that long ago and it wasn't yet known and now it is common knowledge that that these are bound to each other in this particular sequence um our sos work was done by my uh, first two graduate students laura bonfini and chris karlovich here but i want to highlight ron rogi who was the first person that i published a paper with after joining ucla ron rogi was an undergraduate student and he and i worked together and published my first paper and since then i realized that undergraduates can absolutely do everything that anyone else uh, can do ron is now a professor at university of rochester and except for the fact that he used to sing christmas carols in july i can't think of anything else that is wrong with him <laughs> um now um the question is do you now need um um do do you have special signals like the sevenless signal to define every cell type now you will automatically say that's impossible because for example we have trillions of neurons in our brain you can't have trillions of separate signaling systems and if you did then it'll overwhelm our our um, entire genomic information system so what does one do if these cells have no different factors in them such as stem cells or such as progenitor cells how do they become different um, from each other um and and what we found uh, what what gail flores who was a graduate student found and in this collaborative work with larry zapersky we found that only two signals can um can act in many complicated ways so again think of these as sort of electric currents going into two different devices so they can go in parallel and they have one output they can go in series and they have a different output one can turn the other one off or one can turn the other one on uh, they can come with a delay they can they can have every mode that one can think of of regulation between these two any engineer can think of many different ways of of regulating two signals and nature has already worked it out so that when people say well you know in this developmental system or in this cancer to convert the stem cell into this you need wingless signal or hedgehog signal etc what well, one has to ask in under what context and for how long because a signal now versus a signal 10 minutes later might be interpreted differently also the signal going into different kinds of tissues the same signal will be interpreted differently so this is what it does in the eye but if the same signal sequences in some other primordium say the wing primordium or leg primordium then it will not do the same thing and that's because these tissues have been set aside through their epigenetic mechanisms we will say these days to to be already uh, becoming 
uh, one kind of tissue versus another. And certain genes such as this lozenge gene here is very valuable in terms of setting those parameters. Now, lozenge is what's known as a transcription factor. A transcription factor is a protein that binds to DNA and turns on other genes. And we were happily in the lab at that time between um, Jude Cannon, uh, Andrea Daga, Raghavendra Nagaraj. Uh, we were happily working on lozenge to figure out how this protein binds DNA through this area called the Rungs domain and how these five amino acids can determine whether it will turn on or turn off a gene. When I, to my surprise, found that I was getting invited after reading our papers to all these meetings that were about leukemia. When I went to these meetings, I found out they didn't actually care at all about the eye, definitely didn't care about the fly, but what was true was that a rank domain protein, that which was later renamed RUNCS1, is something that is important in the formation of acute myeloid leukemia, something that still does not have a good cure. Similarly, RUNCS2 loss of function will cause no bones to develop. RUNCS1 loss of function causes no blood to develop. So, um, well... A graduate student, Tim Lebesky, um, then decided, well, you know, if we sort of, if this is what people want to do, then why don't we start working on blood in flies? I think you're thinking, is there blood in flies? Yeah, there's blood in flies. So this is seen um, in... Um, in, easiest in the larva, which is semi-transparent, and you can see these blood cells that are going around, and the blood cells that are pumped, there's a heart, there's an aorta, but there are no blood vessels. And before anyone asks, no, the fly blood is not green. It's just labeled with a green fluorescent protein here. Um, what was really amazing was that just as the loss of AML1, or, or RUNCS1, as it is now called, causes loss of all definitive hematopoiesis in, in mammals, so there'll, be no, there'll just be blast cells, there'll be no, um, no T cells, B cells, red blood cells, and so on and so forth. There are some primitive erythrocytes that, uh, that survive. Similarly, Tim Lebesky found that at least one class of blood cells in Drosophila is dependent upon that homologous protein. This was something that even was, was really quite difficult to believe in the beginning. Now, for, now, the blood cells that I showed circulating around in the tissue are the blood cells which are made in the embryo for the purpose of the larva. The larva uses those blood cells for, for fighting off infections, for um, for injury repair, for eating up any junk that might be generated by dying tissue and so on and so forth. These are all myeloid cells. There's no lymphoid. There are no T cells and B cells. There's no acquired immunity in flies. But the innate immunity which we also possess is ancient and is found in flies as well. Now, where, does, where do the blood that the adult and the pupae have come from, they develop in this organ which is known as lymph gland. And the lymph gland has these various lobes and, and this develops in the larval stages, making blood that will be used in the adult and the pupae. And Corey Evans, um, a, a, a really essential member of our laboratory, now a, a, a teaching faculty member at UCLA. Um, he was the first to notice, even though people have looked at these tissues for a hundred years, nobody saw this before him, that there are two areas which look different in the, uh, in the lymph gland, and if one stains with mature blood markers, then they are only in these peripheral regions. And so Corey called the, this the cortical zone, and he called this middle the medullary zone. Um, 
what does the medullary zone have? It has what we call progenitor cells. Um, I would have liked to call them stem cells, but stem cells, hematopoietic stem cells in mammals have certain properties which we cannot fulfill here. So for now, we don't really call them stem cells. They are progenitors like the ones that are derived from stem cells. Uh, we may or may not have true mammalian-like stem cells in, fruit, uh, in, in the blood of fruit fly. Uh, in other organs, there are. So these progenitor cells, though, they give rise to all the different um, cells that you see in these cortical regions. And here is uh, my graduate student, current graduate student, Ting Liu. He just made these constructs to make this visible. You realize that we also have these progenitor cells and we have cells differentiating, but they are in our bone marrow. But here, uh, this is all the cells in the hematopoietic organ, and here are the cells glowing in ultraviolet that are the progenitor population. Here then are the differentiated cells in red, glowing a different color in a confocal microscope. And here there's a group of cells in green that is known as a hematopoietic niche. So this is, um, our bone marrow also has a niche, or niche, some people call it. Uh, this is a group of cells. In the case of mammals, it's either the bone cells themselves or uh, the vascular system, the blood vessels, or some neurons that are there, which keep the stem cells happy and they keep them uh, protected there. If the stem cell was to get released in our peripheral blood, it will then differentiate if it doesn't get a chance to home back into the bone marrow. But it's not so easy to look in the bone marrow in a live animal. Um, this is not in a live animal. This is actually in a fixed tissue. But you see that these few cells are the niche cells that maintain the, the uh, progenitor population. And here is uh, uh, Lauren Goins, who has joined our lab just about, I don't know, three or four weeks ago. And even in this short period, she has now del uh, delivered a, a brand new method of looking at these in a live animal. So you can see this is moving somewhat because although the Lauren has tried to make this as animal as uncomfortable as possible, but it still wiggles somewhat. Um, and, and then you can see these different uh, cells that are, uh, that, that are developing in the live animal. And this will be a very important thing for us to see how exactly the progenitor cells make, um, make the differentiated cells. Now, that's all sort of descriptive. You, you know, in order to publish uh, such, a, um, uh, su such a description, you have to figure out what the underlying mechanism is and which we have done. Now, this is six different senior postdocs, Martinez Augusto is now uh, an associate professor here in the pediatrics department. Um, six different uh, postdocs in the lab spent five years. So this is 30 person hours, which then got into just one paper, which is criminal enough. And then I, sub then I summarized that in one slide, which is horrible. And then I'm not going to explain this slide to you which is totally unacceptable. Um, but I think you'll thank me for not explaining this slide to you. Um, the important part here is that there is a signal that goes from the niche and maintains the progenitor population in its progenitor fate. This is not surprising. In mammalian systems, people have shown that such niches and niches, uh, they have signals that go between the niche and the progenitor population. What was new here was that as cells start maturing at the other end, they also send a signal which cooperates with the niche signal in order to maintain these as uh, it's a homeostatic balance. It just knows that I started differentiating, and so we need to maintain this many progenitors as a reservoir in case we have an infection or something like that. And so that kind of halts the process of these cells dividing. 
Um, such examples, so we call this the equilibrium signal, such examples of a differentiated cell sending back signal at the, at the progenitor is actually now becoming quite, uh, quite observable in many cases in mammalian systems, uh, such as Elaine Fuchs has found in the hair follicle system. Um, and, and when you look carefully, you see examples like this. Although I can't explain to you the, the nitty-gritties of this pathway, I can show you what the uh, consequence of losing them is. If you lose either the niche signal or the backward equilibrium signal, the result is pretty much the same. The progenitor population is lost. So you see there are no, none of these blue cells left. Uh, in fact, there is one little blue thing somewhere there. So to show that we are not cheating here and just showing you non-blue uh, in red. So, um, so the, they are really lost and this is the niche that, that's, that's fine. Okay, so thus far I've told you about how blood cells are formed, what are the signals and so on and so forth in Drosophila and explained that these are very, very similar to the way um, that some of our blood forms and, and, and this is not surprising at least to us. The point is, if we want to keep working in Drosophila, then, then we need to be doing experiments that are not currently doable in mammalian systems. We have to look far ahead and say, let's do something which, you know, it will take 20 years for the mammalian people to actually get to that point. If we didn't do that, then Drosophila will lose its predictive value, and then we will just be confirming everything that people have already found in mammals and will be confirming them in flies, which nobody is interested in, and as, for good reason. So what is it that we can do which is a little bit forward-looking here? And we realized that these cells are myeloid progenitors, and one of the functions of myeloid progenitors is stress sensitivity. If there is an external stress, systemic stress, then these progenitors will react to it. And while such stresses probably uh, make our blood uh, progenitors react as well, but it's very difficult to know what is direct and what is indirect, the effect of stress. So we decided to look at all of these different kinds of stresses that one sees uh, from at a systemic level and see what uh, the blood, how the blood reacts to it. The first of these was by a graduate student of mine, Edward Osuansa, and Edward is now a professor, assistant professor at Columbia University. And what Edward found was that these progenitor cells have high levels of free radicals, reactive oxygen species, or ROS as it is known. Now, you would say that is strange. Isn't ROS or free radicals, aren't they really bad for us? Isn't that why we take antioxidants and so on and so forth? And that's all true. It is bad for us. But just like many noxious chemicals such as nitric oxide, carbon monoxide, etc., are bad for us, but in small quantities they can be used for signaling, for real um, um, uh, development. Similarly, Edwards' results showed that here ROS is used as a signaling molecule because if you take away all the ROS, now these cells refuse to, to mature. So why will you use such a strange system to make your blood cells? If these cells indeed are going to be stress-sensitive cells, then the argument that we made was that this is a Goldilocks model. You need a certain amount that is normal for normal development. If you reduce it, it does not differentiate anymore, doesn't mature. But if some artificial stress, such as in infection, which raises free radicals in our blood, then there will be a huge amount of this immune response. It will make a lot of blood. So this makes sense. And this is, the, this is kind of the theme that you will see as I quickly go through three or four more examples, that certain things are used 
for development and the same pathways are used under stressful conditions to overreact in the blood. So here is the second example, work done by Tina Mukherjee, who was a postdoc in the lab, who is now assistant professor at INSTEM in Bangalore. Um, and, and this is what <clears throat> she found. This molecule here called HIF is a famous molecule, hypoxia-inducible factor it is called. It's called hypoxia-inducible factor because it helps during low oxygen conditions. In fact, if you had normoxia, which is if you had normal levels of oxygen, it inhibits or destroys this factor. Now, what Tina found was that in these cells, these particular cells, there is nitric oxide which also stabilizes HIF. So there is a yin and yang going on here where oxygen is trying to destroy it and nitric oxide is trying to stabilize it. And at the end, you have a certain amount of this protein which is found in these cells. That then binds another protein. And by the way, for people who keep up with these things, my colleagues, um, HIF notch binding together is now a proven fact in, in mammalian systems. Previously, it was only shown in cell lines, but now it is very clear that in vivo, these two bind and control transcription. Okay, back to English. Um, uh, the, the, um, the, crystals, uh, the, the crystal cells then are formed. These are a kind of blood cell are formed with this much of HIF being there. So what is the, the stress condition? Under hypoxia, where you now reduce oxygen, under that reduced oxygen condition, there's nothing, nothing destroying this protein and the nitric oxide is still activating it. The result is a great deal of increase in HIF, which means a great deal of increase in the number of these cells. These blood cells are important for a, a sort of um, providing some remedy against hypoxia. Then there's this example by Jiwon Shim. Jiwon is now uh, an assistant professor at, um, at Hanyang uh, Seoul University. And what Jiwon showed was that insulin receptor is present on the progenitor cells. Now, we usually associate insulin signaling with control of blood sugar, but it also has an effect on growth. So this insulin... The insulin, it then keeps these cells happy and in, in a progenitor state. But insulin is controlled by nutrition. So, so normally, it, the fly is eating and it's making insulin and these are maintained. Now, if you starve it, which is obviously the most important of all stresses, a starved fly has a tendency to not being able to fight off infection so easily. So when you starve the fly and you remove these amino acids, what it does is it prevents the formation of insulin. Fat body is the liver. Um, prevents the formation of insulin. And without this insulin, then these progenitors are gone. It is an immune response again. And then this is a really uh, unique uh, case, uh, which is now currently being worked on by Corey Evans and my, a graduate student, Ting Liu. It's, if you take a, 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 um, a sterilized needle and you, and you prick the larva here and the lymph gland is far away, what you find is that all the blood cells react to that pricking by the sterile, sterile needle. And in fact, the blood, the, in the lymph gland, there are these gigantic cells which are normally not found. These are cells that the animal uses to protect against wasp infestation. And, and, and they become immediately differentiated in these particular uh, lymph glands. Now, you'd say, well, these flies are pretty stupid. You know, you have a sterile needle, you have burnt it with alcohol, and you're doing this, and they think they're being stung by a wasp. Well, if you think about it, that's a very smart thing to do. You, 
in the wild, nobody is going to take a needle and sterilize it and then prick it into the larva. <clears throat> in the wild, when it gets stuck, then it is a wasp. And the next thing that will happen is that it's going to put in, lay its eggs, and those eggs are going to do havoc and eat, eat it up. So it gets ready. So we feel that this is an example of priming of, of the immune system, uh, which is very well known for acquired immunity uh, in, in, in mammalian systems. But it looks more and more that, that the innate immune system in arthropods also has a certain amount of memory of what may have happened to it. And this is something that we definitely want to follow up. And then there is this. Uh, this is Carrie, uh, who is a post, recent postdoc in the lab um, a few months, and working with Arbor, who is an undergraduate student. And what Carrie uh, and Arbor did was to make some tumors all over the fly in different places, like in the eye that Arbor made, in the wing that Carolyn made. And um, the result of making these tumors elsewhere is that the blood reacts enormously. And you see these big holes and you see these things almost looking like they're falling apart. And you wonder how are these even held because they're all falling apart. There are big holes here. And they're not falling apart because those are filled with some of this gunk. It's called extracellular matrix. And I saw Dr. Fessler here, so I shouldn't call it gunk. Uh, it's a very, very important group of molecules um, uh, which, is, uh, which is secreted by the cells, as Dr. Fessler has shown, um, and in this case, stained with spark antibody. Um, and so uh, what happens then is that if there is a tumor somewhere else in the fly, the, the blood cells suddenly become this hyperactive and start secreting all this extracellular material. So there's some connection between a tumor elsewhere and blood. I, I, something that has to be you know, investigated more into whether this happens in mammals or not. And then this is my fa favorite and the weirdest example that we found. Uh, fruit flies like fruit and they like fruity odors. These odors are sensed by these um, by these olfactory neurons, which then send connections to the brain. The brain then secretes a neurotransmitter called GABA into the bloodstream. Now, this is a scary thought. Lots of people are on GABA receptor inhibitors for many neural problems, such as, including um, attention deficit and so on and so forth. But we have a lot of GABA in our blood as well. Uh, this GABA then binds GABA receptor and that through calcium is important for maintaining these progenitors. Now, if you were to take these away, either the smell and a normal one or the neuron or any of this stuff, then these progenitors are not maintained. So lack of odor for these is a very strong, stressful situation. Now, whether this will be true, whether any kind of um, sensory input will have an effect on our own myeloid systems, well, there are examples of people who cannot smell, they have myeloid dysplasias and so on and so forth, but no one can tell that that's a direct sort of a mechanism like we show here. In the last few minutes, um, I'm going to uh, talk about something that I, I don't know if anyone else in, in a research uh, seminar has done before, and that is to talk a little bit, just a few slides, about undergraduate education. And the reason why I feel uh, this, uh, this has a place here is because it's not separable from uh, my research uh, endeavors. Um, it's... It's, a, it's, it's what we call, there are a few of us, uh, as, as uh, HHMI professors, we call this um, research education, not education research, which people in the education department psychology do, but research education. And the reason is this. Um, uh, if I go to an English class and they, on that day, want to 
um, you know, teach a sonnet by Shakespeare or want to read a book by James Joyce. And, and <clears throat> it's hard. It's hard to understand what is being said. Nevertheless, it's always going with the original Shakespeare and the original James Joyce first. And then after the student has struggled through it, comes the part where somebody explains it and tries to find similes and similarities with Byron, Keats and whatever it is and so on and so forth. But that comes later. And strangely, scientists who are the most progressive, or at least consider themselves so, uh, of all of uh, at the cutting edge uh, of, of just about everything, they still believe that you can first summarize everything in a textbook, um, give them all the answers that, that is needed. Well, this is how it is. This is what the formula is. This is how what happens when happened when Mendel did his cross and so on and so forth. Um, but they don't talk about. Um, how is it that someone found this in their own research lab? And yet people are sending their kids to UCLA mainly so that they can learn from the world's topmost scientists. So why not turn it around and put these people in front of microscopes and give them something to do? And all I know is Drosophila. So give them a bunch of Drosophila experiments to do and then see if that has an effect on their ability to understand. And maybe uh, they will not get bored when they go into a didactic lecture because they'll figure it out themselves as to how things work. So that led to this UCLA biomedical research program that uh, Professor Wa uh, talked about. Um, it has got a hands-on component and it's got this research deconstruction component, and then together a bunch of students are chosen for this minor in biomedical research. So we have trained about 2,200 students in research through these programs, um, which is still a small number, uh, but for those 2,200 students, we would like to believe that it has done some good. Now come last year, uh, um, this recommendation, which was a report to the President of the United States, came out called PCAST, where the President was uh, given by a big council um, the, the recommendations for how to make education uh, more interesting and, and, and something that will retain uh, students in uh, STEM fields, which is science. Um, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. So, um, and guess what the first two recommendations were? Number one, use evidence-based teaching practices. Number two, replace lab courses with research courses. And this is what exactly we have been doing for 12 years. Um, we've been doing that because of the generosity of HHMI, which has uh, supported it, and because of the support that we have gotten from uh, three consecutive deans, Dean Eiserling, Dean Reisler, and now Dean Sork, um, for um, uh, programs like this. Um, and we would like to believe that uh, since our program has been highlighted in every publication that went into making these recommendations, that, um, that these kinds of practices, in fact, have been discussed um, in, in order to come up with uh, this Engage to Excel. And, you know, the man likes it. He's smiling, reading this report. So, so, uh, so I think, I think this, is a, uh, this, is a, this is a good thing overall. Okay, so just to give you a glimpse in one little slide, um, you know, uh, these are not Mickey Mouse little experiments that the students do. So just for one of our projects... Um, they had to do 120,000 Drosophila crosses. This is not a trivial amount of work, and what they generate out of it is something that is used worldwide by real research scientists. Now, we have also done this with, uh, as a summer program with some high school students. We have no funding for that whatsoever. This is just a voluntary thing that we do um, where we take a few students 
and we mix them up with undergraduates, they have no problems, zero problems keeping up with the undergraduates. And that's because of the way they are taught and they do, they do really well. Um, and since they are my kids, I have to brag a little. Uh, this is mankind's uh, record for a, for a paper with the number of undergraduate authors. Uh, 264 undergraduate authors on a paper in genetics uh, that was published uh, by us and, and, and uh, one other which had less. And right now we are writing one with uh, help from Corey Evans and Ira Clark uh, that'll have over 300 uh, undergraduate authors. Now, what was unexpected, because we didn't aim for it, but this just came out of the data retrospectively looking at it, is the retention of, this, of these students in STEM. Now, this is really pathetic. This data comes from the, the, from the national, uh, um, uh, the Obama uh, uh, PCAST. Uh, only 35.1% of students complete in STEM. So these are students who are coming in, they want to do science, technology, engineering, mathematics, they are signing up to do it. By their second year, they have left. And they have left for some non-science field. Only 35.1% survive. UCLA is a fantastic place for undergraduate education. It really is. It's, it's not even without any intervention or intervention which needs a lot more resources. Um, we already are at 70% of STEM retention. And so there's something that people at UCLA are doing which is really, really good and nice. I think uh, with, with a little more attention to, to, uh, to this issue, um, UCLA could easily become the leader in the United States in this particular uh, place. We have fantastic people in the psychology department, education department, and in, our high, and in life sciences, engineering, uh, that will be able to um, help. Now, where we fail is amongst underrepresented minorities. So we are down now to 48%, which is not so different. Now, of course, this number will be even lower for underrepresented minorities. So we went back and looked at about maybe five, six years worth of data, and what we found was that people who had taken that hands-on course, this was 95, 96% uh, retention in STEM. And although our numbers are small of underrepresented minorities, but there's 100% retention of in STEM. Okay, now there's this research deconstruction. So this is something that I just thought, of, thought up one day, and it was born out of fear. Um, and, you know, Francois Jacob was once asked, does science cause anxiety? And he very quickly replied, no, it's the other way around. <laughs> and, and this is clearly uh, education um, pedagogy uh, coming out of anxiety. Okay. It was very, becoming very clear that this hands-on work is very expensive, and we are not going to be able to um, afford it for uh, long periods of time. It, it cannot be done with uh, short amounts of uh, support from outside. Education is, requires long-term support. So if it, can't, if it can't be done, and if we can't generate funds here, then the question is, why is this hands-on thing so important? What is, it, what is happening to these kids' brains that tells them this is a better way to learn? And at the, in the, at the core of this is this idea that they do not seem to get by just reading a textbook. How is it that these experiments that scientists have done, how these experiments are done? If we could somehow get to that part, then we will achieve at least not quite as much as hands-on, but uh, close. And so this is what we do when it comes to this uh, deconstruction. Um, a full-scale research seminar is given by an invited UCLA faculty member to first and second year students. So you can imagine this seminar goes right above their head, even when it is given in a very clear manner. 
because they just don't have the background to understand it. These are videotaped, placed on a website, and students review it over and over again. And then these deconstruction classes begin, where they use the seminar more or less as a textbook. And then from little pieces of the seminar, they then, uh, they then explain what is it that the speaker, when she said that I ran this gel and I got this band, what is it that she actually did? What is meant by running this gel? What are the controls? How was the experiment done? After five weeks of doing that, three times a week, um, then we bring back the speaker for a question-answer session at the end of the series. And just about anyone that uh, you can think of at UCLA um, who works in sort of the molecular biology and cell biology, etc., uh, they have all given talks here. Um, and uh, this is one great thing about UCLA. Most of these people are in the School of Medicine. It has never happened that I've asked somebody to, to help with this teaching, and they have said no. So, and they are very busy people too. So this is, this is a good thing uh, that we can do. So now, um, we, we went one step further. What we did was, um, we took these uh, seminars, which are there on the web, called iBioSeminars. And this is David Morgan um, at UCSF, a very well-known scientist. Now, I want to say right up front, even if it irritates people, that I do not believe in fully online experiences, even if it is going to cause uh, you know, savings in, in tons and tons of money. You need uh, the personal contact. Um, but one should utilize online resources. And so this is an example where, um, um, where um, David Morgan is going to explain something, and the students watch this. Um. And so, for example, N6-benzyl ATP can be used by the analog-sensitive CDK1 kinase, but cannot be used by a wild-type kinase because that bulky ATP analog can't fit into the wild-type active site. And so, of course, if you put a radial label on the gamma phosphate Oops. of this bulky ATP analog and then add this kinase to a crude cell lysate, what you hope to get is the specific labeling of just the direct targets of that protein kinase and no other kinases in the cell lysate because those other kinases can't use this bulky ATP analog. Okay. Now, my colleagues here, uh, uh, who are biochemists and molecular biologists, will say that this is the clearest uh, that... The, this experiment has ever been described. And I will 100% agree with them. David Morgan is an amazing man, and he explained this absolutely clearly. It was very, very clear what he just said. Unfortunately, to the first and second year uh, student who is just out of high school, this is not so clear. And that is where this idea comes in that you have to make this clear to them. And that's where the role of deconstruction comes in. And there is our master deconstructor, Rafael Romero, who is now taking this uh, piece by piece and then trying to, to use simpler language. What's the flaw of the experiment that I'm proposing right here? Uh, if there are any other kinases in their substrates in the tube, then those substrates will also be phosphorylated. Right, and where are those other kinases going to come? From the cell lysate. Right, so you, you'd imagine that this cell lysate is going to have other kinases. Sure. I mean, there are many different types of kinases in cells. And kinases use ATP to phosphorylate. So what ATP are they going to be using in my particular test? That 32, that, that P32 ATP. So if I want to detect radioactive proteins later, am I only going to get the CDK1 radioactive proteins, or what radioactive proteins am I going to get? All of them. So in fact, what kind of substrate would this experiment give me? It's what? Sorry. Any substrate for any cycling? Any substrate for any for any cyclin or kinase. or kinase. kinase for kinase, right? So this experiment is actually addressing the question: is what substrates are being targeted by any kinase in? 
Okay, so you see that, you know, in terms of doing this in little pieces and then going into exactly what experiment was done by David Morgan is what then gets them worked up. At the same time, they're also reading papers, they're doing, um, uh, doing, uh, doing sort of um, problem sets which are related to them. And then we bring David Morgan himself back on Skype and now he asks questions and we let, ask the students to, let, to ask questions. Now remember on the first day when we showed them the seminar, they were completely thunderstruck. They had absolutely no idea what was going on. And I think you will agree that they have made some improvements after five weeks. Yeah. What else can we talk about? Here's one. Hi. Um, when running the mass spec, you attempted to find um, substrates of CDK1 in an unbiased fashion, but then at the end of the experiment, you, you identified the substrates via a consensus sequence, mm -hmm. correct? So yeah. do you find in a way that that biases the experiment itself, and, and do you think that you miss substrates based on that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, basically, there's this long history in the field of CDKs that there... So you see what we have, what we have created now. Now you need a translation for this young lady's question. So um, it is amazing how much of a difference you can make to these students. They are ready. They are smart people. All, the, all of our students um, in, in this five-week period of, of doing uh, this kind of a deconstruction. Um, and this deconstruction works. It can be it's scaled up and down. Rafael can now do up to 100 people in a class. It can be transported to places which do not have laboratories. It works in Hebrew because it was done by Benny Shilo to teach uh, school teachers um, in Weizmann Institute, works in French because it was used in Lyon. Um, and so it's, um, it's, it's, it's a useful thing to keep in mind. So then when we take students from there, there's a bunch of students who are now in our uh, biomedical minor in 147 different laboratories. These are students who do much more research. They publish papers. I mean, they are 90 publications. This doesn't include our centennial papers, but uh, they, they are papers in very good places um, that students are on. Um, and half of them now go to PhD or MD-PhD programs, half to MDs, and everyone goes to graduate program. Um, I come up with some ideas and teach a little bit in these courses, but really, Ira, John, Raphael, Corey, they are the ones that are the master instructors of this. Um, the administration has been very supportive, as I said. I'm sorry, also Judy Smith at that time. Um, and um, the advisory committee is made up of people from all different departments, including history here, um, uh, in order to select the students. All right, so this is my laboratory. Um, there are, you know, undergraduates. Uh, there are graduate students. Where are you? Um, there are postdoctoral fellows, a lot of them. Um, and then there are senior researchers um, that are either research faculty or teaching faculty that have kindly been associated with me for some time. Um, there is absolutely nothing that I said uh, which could be done without them, and they do their own thinking, they come up with their own ideas, and they do their own experiments. And these guys are absolutely essential for doing any of the work that I have presented. And these three, my good friends, um, are the ones uh, that provide the reason why I should be doing science. And then there is UCLA. Um, it is an amazing place to be working. Um, and and there, there's the, it is just so easy to go to the David Geffen School of Medicine, come back to the College of Life Sciences and and go back to the School of Medicine, back and forth, and try to get FTEs from here, money from there, space from here. Uh, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, uh, 
I have made this into an art form now. Uh, it, it, is, it is an amazing place where it's very friendly, people talk to each other. Uh, I could right now start naming a large number of people who have uh, been instrumental in not just running my department, but also in helping me with my research or my teaching. But, you know, the reason I decided not to do that is because then it will sound like a retirement speech. <laughs> and I thought I would like you to think about this, uh, this lecture rather, than, rather like a mid-career update. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.